Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm Evan Gottesman. Earlier this week, the United States completed its military withdrawal from Afghanistan, ending a mission that began nearly 20 years ago and leaving behind a country under the control of the Taliban. While Afghanistan is somewhat removed from the main topic of this podcast, this is a significant event that has given way to parallels in the Israeli-Palestinian sphere, with people drawing comparisons to Israeli withdrawals from Gaza and southern Lebanon, and others suggesting the collapse of the Afghan government foreshadows the downfall of the Palestinian Authority and a Hamas takeover of the West Bank. Today, we're going to take a closer look at some of these comparisons to see what they get right and where they miss the mark. Joining me from Tel Aviv is Neri Zilber. Neri is an adjunct fellow at the Washington Institute and has just recently joined Israel Policy Forum as a policy advisor. He has bylines in the New York Times, The Atlantic, Foreign Policy, and other major outlets. And along with Raith Alomari, he is the co-author of State with No Army, Army with No State, The Evolution of the Palestinian Authority Security Forces. Neri, thanks for joining us. Great to be with you, Evan. And just by way of a quick piece of exciting news, Neri is with us as a guest today, but he will actually be joining as a more frequently heard voice on future Israel Policy Pod episodes as a primary host and commentator. Neri, we're really excited to have you on board and hear more of your unique perspective and expertise and everything that you bring to the field. That makes two of us uh, very excited to be on board formally and to move forward with the podcast, which I think is a great resource generally, uh, and podcasts are a great way to convey a lot of information. Absolutely. And the podcast has, has been something that I've really enjoyed being a part of, and I'm excited to see where you and our other colleagues are going to take it. So just jumping into today's topic, before we dive into the specific comparisons, what has been the general response from the Israeli public to the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan? And what about the response from Israeli officials? Well, I think overall, like many other places in the world, Israelis viewed the last two or three weeks and the news and images coming out of Afghanistan with uh, a lot of surprise, shock, alarm. Uh, Israelis don't like to view their closest and strongest ally, uh, the United States, as uh, as being defeated, uh, as being almost humiliated. Uh, and so that was the general vibe. Uh, you know, you had Israelis texting me and kind of following the news and uh, and quite uh, quite shocked to see what happened, as I think all of us were. But I think more to the point, uh, Israelis care a lot more about uh, their neighborhood uh, than than Afghanistan. Uh, Afghanistan. Uh, is and, and seems to Israelis quite far away. Uh, it's not uh, Iraq or Syria or Lebanon or Egypt or, or even the Palestinian territories. Uh, it's not even Europe. Uh, I see nothing of the United States and events happening domestically back in the U.S. So uh, it was it was observed here. It was followed here. But uh, you know, given COVID and other domestic political developments, uh, it wasn't at the top of the news agenda over the past two or three weeks. Uh, so that's just uh, by way of, of the public. Uh, they are aware of what happened in Afghanistan, but uh, but they weren't following it that closely. Uh, I think Israeli officials uh, also viewed it with a bit of alarm, um, but not hysteria. Uh, I think they, they understand. I heard this firsthand from Israeli officials that uh, 
while the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan um, was a U.S. foreign policy decision and, and, and a momentous one, a historic one, right? Uh, it may not and likely will not have major reverberations uh, with respect to Israel. Uh, and so I had one senior Israeli official tell me, uh, you know, I'm not really sure that it'll impact what's happening here and, and U.S. policy vis-a-vis Israel and, and Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, but there is concern in Israeli quarters about what it might mean uh, towards Israel's enemies and America's enemies. Uh, and so I had a senior IDF officer tell me, you know, basically everyone's looking at these images and these pictures coming out of Afghanistan. Uh very much so Iran and Hezbollah too. And so the aftershocks and, and maybe the emboldenment of Israel and America's enemies is something that does concern Israel. So there might not be an immediate fallout from this, but there could be some sort of indirect knock-on effect coming in later. That's right. Uh, you know, the, the whole notion of, of deterrence and uh, what lessons Iran and ISIS and other bad actors in the Middle East closer to Israel uh, draw from the U.S.-Afghanistan story uh, and, you know, the 20-year campaign that, that just ended. So I think that's something that all of us need to probably uh, look for. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if, if that's the lesson uh, the bad actors actually draw from Afghanistan. Even if there are no immediate or or proximate effects of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict or on Israeli policy, that doesn't mean that people aren't now drawing their own lessons or comparisons, as I mentioned in the intro. And you actually wrote an article uh, recently for New Lines magazine examining one such comparison that's hitting close to home for many people in the Israeli military establishment, which is the parallel with the Israeli occupation and later withdrawal from southern Lebanon, uh, which was also a nearly two-decade commitment. Can you remind our listeners what the Israeli military operation in southern Lebanon was all about? So not to get too far into a history lesson, uh, and this was the gist of of the article that I uh, published Yesterday for New Alliance magazines, um, there are eerie comparisons between Israel's experience in, in Lebanon uh, from right around the mid-1970s all the way to the eventual Israeli withdrawal in May of 2000. Uh, and there were a lot of uh, very significant comparisons in, in the campaign, uh, how the withdrawal was conducted, uh, the mistakes that were made uh, by Israel uh, before and during and after the withdrawal. But... In terms of Israel's engagement with Lebanon, we have to remember back in the mid-1970s, the Palestine Liberation Organization, uh, led by Yasser Arafat, uh, still very much a terrorist organization back then, uh, had relocated to to Lebanon and primarily southern Lebanon. And it was using that area as a base uh, of operations to launch artillery strikes and cross-border terror attacks against uh, northern Israel. Uh, And so Israel was facing this terrorist threat on its northern border, and at the same time, Lebanon itself was uh, disintegrating and falling into civil war. Uh, civil war in Lebanon erupted in 1975. Uh, it went on for 15 very long and bloody years. And so what you had in southern Lebanon is a vacuum that was filled by the PLO, by the Palestinian militant groups, and it was essentially a free-for-all. I won't get into the nitty-gritty of Lebanese politics, 
uh, Lebanese politics make Israeli politics look look quite tame in comparison. Uh, but what you had in, in southern Lebanon uh, were local Christians, uh, and there were villages all across southern Lebanon that were being attacked uh, by Palestinian militant groups and other left-wing factions. And so the Christians of southern Lebanon were looking for allies. They're looking for support. And they reached out to, to Israel uh, in early 1976. And basically, this is where Israel's engagement with southern Lebanon started. Uh, it started small, uh, kind of old British World War II era rifles, uh, some medicine, some basic foodstuffs. Uh, and it grew from there. Uh, Israel started training uh, local, uh, at first, Christian village militias. They started arming them with more advanced weapons. Uh, they started building schools and roads and uh, health clinics and everything else in southern Lebanon. At one point, uh, Israel bought the entire harvest, the tobacco harvest of southern Lebanon, uh, and the IDF mediated that sale to uh, the Israeli uh, cigarette monopoly uh, back in the late 70s. Uh, so Israel was engaged, uh, but they were still facing a, a terrorist threat from the Palestinians uh, that were still based in southern Lebanon. And eventually, uh, the Likud government, headed by Menachem Begin and Ariel Sharon as defense minister, uh, decided enough was enough, and they chose to invade uh, Lebanon. Uh, now, initially, this was supposed to be a, a counter-terror operation. Uh, limited ground offensive to clear out southern Lebanon from PLO and other Palestinian militant groups. Uh, and that was supposed to be that. Uh, but Ariel Sharon had a, different ideas. He drove the IDF all the way to Beirut. Uh, our older listeners will remember uh, that episode. Uh, there was a siege of Beirut. And eventually, the the PLO was evicted from, from Lebanon. But Ariel Sharon had grander, grander visions. Uh, it wasn't quite nation building. Uh, you can probably call it nation engineering. Uh, he wanted to foist a peace deal on the Lebanese government, uh, led by uh, Christian Maronite groups. Uh, and he actually got it, got a peace deal, uh, but it lasted less than a year. Um, again, I'll spare, I'll spare our listeners all the details, but Israel eventually withdrew back to southern Lebanon uh, in around 1984-85, and it set up what they called a security zone in southern Lebanon. So you had the IDF sitting in southern Lebanon, uh, and again, it had local allies armed and trained by the IDF, um, and they basically raised this Arab uh, militia come army called the South Lebanon Army. And it was made up of uh, Christian officers, but also uh, Sunni Lebanese Muslims, Druze Lebanese, and Shiite Lebanese Muslims, all serving uh, in this in this quasi army, uh, along with the IDF, and they were essentially holding this territory. Uh, about 150,000 Lebanese civilians lived uh, under IDF and SLA uh, governance and sovereignty in southern Lebanon from right around the early to mid 80s, uh, all the way through to 2000. Um, now, at a certain point, the PLO was replaced by a, a far deadlier foe. As, uh, as many of you probably know, uh, Hezbollah, Shiite Lebanese militant group that rose up and really started causing Israel and its local Lebanese allies, the SLA, a lot of problems. Uh, it started relatively small, car bombs, terrorist attacks, hit-and-run attacks. Uh, but by the 1990s, it was a full-blown guerrilla war um, against the IDF and the SLA in the so-called security zone in southern Lebanon. 
And IDF casualties throughout the 1990s averaged about uh, two dozen per year. And at a certain point, the Israeli public and then Israeli officialdom started asking themselves, why, why are we here? Uh, we're essentially being bled by Hezbollah and its allies in Syria and in Iran. Uh, what, what is the actual value of the security zone? And eventually, Ehud Barak, when he was elected prime minister in 1999, uh, one of his core campaign promises was, I'm going to withdraw the IDF from southern Lebanon uh, within a year, within a year of me being elected. And so he was elected uh, in 1999, and that was a core campaign promise. Um, but as we know, it's easier to to declare that you're withdrawing from a, a foreign entanglement. Uh, Lebanon came to be viewed as Israel's own Vietnam back then. That was the language actually used. Uh, it's far easier to say you're withdrawing than uh, to actually decide how you're going to do the withdrawal. Uh, and that's where the, the comparisons between uh, Israel's experience in Lebanon 20, 20 plus year uh, campaign. Uh, that's where the comparisons come into to the U.S. and Afghanistan and its own 20-year campaign that we just signed. Right. This is all starting to sound familiar uh, to my American ears, this cycle of you know starting with limited counterterrorism objectives and then shifting into a wider, more ambitious uh, scheme involving uh, restructuring or, or, or nation building or nation engineering, to borrow your terminology, and, and then kind of uh, getting bogged down. So uh, what are Israeli defense officials seeing in the U.S.-Afghanistan-Israel-Lebanon uh, comparison? So in terms of the comparison, I tried to draw this out uh, in my article for New Lines magazine, but I heard it uh, firsthand about a week or two ago when everything was going down in Afghanistan. I actually happened to be up uh, on the Israel-Lebanon border with uh, with the IDF, and, uh, and it was eerie. You heard comparisons. This looks just like our withdrawal from southern Lebanon in May of 2000, uh, the, the hordes of people rushing uh, in Afghanistan's case, the, the airport, but in Israel, it was uh, the SLA uh, that essentially held firm for for 20 years with Israeli support, uh, essentially dissolve in a matter of days. Uh, in the beginning, it started with a few outposts in southern Lebanon held by the SLA. Uh, you had soldiers defect, uh, kind of take off their uniforms and and go back to their villages. Uh, Hezbollah started taking over positions, oftentimes with without a shot even being fired. And it was a cascade. Uh, as one uh, former IDF commander in South Lebanon called it, uh, it was a, it was a domino, like dominoes falling, like a house of cards, which again, talk about eerie, eerie parallels to the current moment. Um, and so essentially you had the collapse of the SLA. Uh, you had Ehud Barak actually try and, and was forced to move up the planned withdrawal uh, because his local ally collapsed. And so you had this mad dash by the SLA uh, to essentially get out of southern Lebanon. Uh, and they fled to the border and you had masses of uh, women, children, families of, of these SLA uh, fighters and officers uh, clamoring to get into Israel, uh, essentially as refugees. Uh, so the scenes were, were quite eerily similar to, um, to Israeli eyes, especially Israeli military eyes. And... Uh, eventually, they they obviously let in. 
the Lebanese allies. Um, but it was it was quite a, a difficult moment, a shock. Um, one former SLA commander told me a few years ago that he essentially had to call home and tell his wife that they had 10 minutes to essentially get everything ready and uh, make a make a run for the border. And so, you know, you want to draw parallels, uh, the surprise of the collapse, the speed of the collapse of a local ally after a decision to withdraw from a foreign entanglement has actually already been made, um, usually usually doesn't work out quite well. And usually you have to um, you have to move up your planned withdrawal. Uh, you have to deal with a humanitarian crisis. And then in the Israeli case, and we'll likely see this in the Afghanistan case too, uh, you have to integrate these people um, as refugees, as exiles uh, into your country, into other countries, and then to really do right by your former allies that stood side by side with you for, for 20 years. That kind of takes me into my next question. We've spoken about what Israelis are gleaning from the American experience in Afghanistan, uh, but are there any more lessons that Americans can draw from the Israeli experience in southern Lebanon? Well, uh, I think it's interesting to to see the reaction to the article, uh, because almost verbatim, the responses I'm getting is, well, uh, we never never learn from historical precedents, right? Uh, So the U.S. might look back at at Vietnam as as the... uh, the best example, uh, but I would argue Israel in Lebanon was was in many ways a lot closer to the Afghanistan experience. Um, you know, it's very easy to get into these foreign entanglements. Uh, Israel didn't didn't invade Lebanon in 1982 and think it was going to stay, um, holding this piece of territory as a security zone for for almost 20 years. Uh, but again, it's very easy to get into these types of campaigns and. They eventually turn into quagmires, especially when when a, uh, an insurgency guerrilla war uh, breaks out due to the due to your presence there. Uh, and getting out, extricating yourself from these types of foreign entanglements is is uh, almost always very messy. And so the responses to the article are are actually uh, quite interesting. It's uh, basically we have to learn from from our mistakes and from others' mistakes. Uh, I think I think that lesson is being internalized right now in in the United States. Uh, we heard President Biden uh, last night say that this was a new era, uh, no more ground wars. Uh, I guess definitely not in the Middle East. And so, uh, so you 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 lo- you see that it's having an impact. Uh, it's just a shame that uh, for America and, and Israel and Lebanon, you have to um, actually go through years of of combat to actually get to that endpoint. Shifting gears from the southern Lebanon example, some commentators and politicians on the Israeli right have been pretty quick to make a connection between the U.S. leaving Afghanistan and an Israeli pullout from occupied Palestinian territories, whether a prospective withdrawal from the West Bank or the actual disengagement from Gaza, which took place in 2005. And one specific aspect of the Israel-Palestine-Afghanistan comparisons from the Israeli right are these comparisons being made between the U.S.-backed and now dissolved Afghan government and the Palestinian Authority. Uh, many people have put forward such analogies, most prominently opposition leader Benjamin Netanyahu. Is there anything to what they're saying here? I don't think so. Uh, you're, you're right 
in the sense that this has been a talking point by primarily the Israeli right, led by uh, former Prime Minister Netanyahu. Uh, they were very quick to to highlight the fact that uh, you know, the U.S. Uh, withdrew from Afghanistan very quickly. Uh, the local allies that they had trained up for 20 years uh, collapsed very quickly and dissolved. And um, we can't uh, we can't agree to such a an arrangement for the West Bank, right? This was the analogy they were uh, they were drawing from it. Uh, that in previous years you had, as part of the Israeli-Palestinian peace talks, the idea that. Uh, a certain kind of U.S. or NATO peacekeeping force or monitoring force would be deployed, uh, maybe not in the West Bank per se, but in the Jordan Valley. Uh, so the Israeli right pointed that and say, well, what guarantee do we have that they won't just cut and run uh, and leave? Uh, and then you also had them drawing the comparison to the Palestinian Authority security forces uh, and comparing that to the Afghan security forces that, that were also trained up uh, by the U.S. and, and the Europeans, so uh, it wasn't a very subtle comparison that they were being that they were making. Uh, it was obviously to serve their own overall political point, which is that uh, withdrawal from the West Bank uh, can never be can never be countenanced, can never be actually considered seriously. Um, I don't think that's the right lesson that Israel should draw from Afghanistan. Uh, you know, we're talking about Israel and Lebanon and, and the comparison between that and the U.S. and Afghanistan. Uh, you know, Israel is in America. Uh, the the West Bank isn't Afghanistan. And these are very different context to, to what's happening. Um, the biggest one, I should say, is that uh, Afghanistan is several thousand miles away from America, uh, while the West Bank is 20 minutes down the road from Jerusalem. So... Uh, you have the geographic proximity, uh, which is very different. You have the overall political context uh, between Israel and, and the Palestinians, which is very different. Um, so, and we should also mention uh, the idea in past peace talk rounds was never that the U.S. was going to uh, guarantee the peace deal. Um, it was another layer of, of security assurances that. That the U.S. was trying to put forward, primarily under uh, former Secretary of State John Kerry. Uh, at the end of the day, though, uh, the IDF uh, still exists. Uh, it would still be itself uh, here on the ground, uh, upholding security. And we should also mention, we may get into it in a second, but uh, the Afghan armed forces uh, are a very different proposition than the Palestinian security forces. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, it's very easy for the Israeli right to to raise this as an example. Um, I don't think it holds much water. Right. I, I do want to get a little bit more into this comparison, though, just to kind of dissect it and understand what the thinking is here. And following up on what you were just talking about, the comparison between the Afghan government and the Afghan military, or now former Afghan government military, uh, with the Palestinian Authority and the PA security forces, what did the former Afghan government and military have in common with the PA, and, and what's different? Well, you have, uh, what's the old line, every happy family is pretty much the same, but every unhappy family is unhappy in its own unique way. So every uh, Arab or Middle Eastern government is arguably uh, unhappy or dysfunctional in its own unique way. Um, I wouldn't draw too, too close a comparison, but, but obviously there are similarities. Uh, you know, the the Afghan government, I suppose, in later years uh, viewed as uh, 
unresponsive, disconnected, corrupt, uh, kind of self-serving, uh, very heavy-handed, at least in terms of the figures that were serving in key positions and, and their their handling of the local population. Uh, all of that m- may be the same. Um, and arguably, uh, those charges can be very uh, legitimately leveled at the Palestinian Authority. Uh, on the other hand, the PA uh, and its leadership, uh, it was created in a very different context. Uh, the West Bank, again, isn't Afghanistan. Um, the the PA and, and the, the ruling Fatah party, for all its faults, um, still on the ground has a measure of legitimacy and, and responsiveness, at least to its own people, if not the wider public. Uh, and we also have uh, the ongoing political problem of, of the Israeli military occupation in the West Bank, uh, which is which is quite different, I would argue, from the U.S. occupation, if you want to call it that, or presence in Afghanistan. Uh, so, so there are similarities. Uh, there are differences. Um, you know, I think in the in the Palestinian Authority case, uh, despite uh, you know hysteria, oftentimes or you know rumors to to its immediate collapse. I, I've been reading and hearing about the collapse of the Palestinian Authority for as long as I've been doing this, uh, and I've been doing this for quite some time. Uh, that that you know next month or next year or in five years the PA won't be around anymore it, it'll it'll collapse and dissolve and uh, here we are uh, in 2021 and the PA is still is still with us uh, for all its faults and for all its uh, positive things that it does do these days so uh, we shouldn't discount it too quickly the PA security forces. Um, are also quite a different proposition than the Afghan security forces. Uh, for one, you do have American and Europeans training and advising the PA security forces, but at no point ever were American and European soldiers fighting side to side and, and providing you know things like close air support and and other uh, other things to to the PA security forces uh, in their operations. So that's a, a huge difference right then and there. Um, if anything, the PA security forces uh, coordinate very closely with the IDF, uh, which, again, the IDF isn't going anywhere either. Uh, we should also mention the Palestinians aren't going anywhere either. It's also a major difference between the U.S. and Afghanistan. Uh, the U.S. can just leave. Uh, and the second difference, too, is just the structure of the PA security forces. Um, you know, To the best of my understanding, the Afghan army was built on the model of the U.S. military, uh, you know, Air, air power, intel arms, you know, corps, divisions, all of all of that jive. Uh, the PA security forces uh, aren't a real army or military. They're not built as such. Um, it's more intel services, police, gendarmerie, uh, kind of armed, more armed police, counter-terror units, special forces. Uh, they're built to do very specific things in the context of the West Bank, uh, uphold law and order. Um, go after terrorists, Hamas cells, uh, and the like. Uh, again, very different proposition than the Afghan army and what it was uh, ostensibly built for. So uh, I could go on, but uh, there are major differences. And and again, you know, if you want to talk about the big difference, you know, political will, uh, the PA security forces, again, for all their faults, um, since since the reforms uh, really undertaken in two thousand eight. Nine and the the U.S. role uh, by the U.S. Security Coordinator, three-star U.S. General sitting in Jerusalem, um, coordinating and advising 
with the PA with the PA forces. The the track record so far, at least over the past decade plus, has been has been quite positive. Um, you've had major political, economic shocks to the PA system, including the security forces, uh, countless. And yet, the PA security forces have held uh, together. They've remained disciplined, overall professional, uh, despite certain abuses that have taken place. Um, again, very different proposition than what happened in Afghanistan in recent weeks and months. I want to play devil's advocate, though, because, you know, we're speaking about the PA security forces in the context of the continued uh, Israeli occupation or control of the West Bank. And to my understanding, a lot of the Israeli rights case here comes from not what happens right now under the status quo, but what happens to the PA security forces and to the Palestinian Authority if Israel is not on the scene. and. Uh, to that point, the PA's previous failures feel like something of an elephant in the room here. I mean, you have the Palestinian Authority's uh, failure to stop Hamas forces from seizing the Gaza Strip in 2007, which is after uh, Israel's pullout of ground forces and uh, settlers in 2005. So how can we be confident that a scenario like that won't play out in the West Bank? So that's a great question. I think it's a legitimate question. Um, the the whole history of what I call the fall of Gaza, right, um, in 2007. Uh, this was after the Israelis pulled out all the IDF forces and settlers in 2005. And in 2007, uh, the Palestinian Authority lost Gaza to Hamas in six days. It took Hamas six days to take over the territory, and we're all living with the consequences of that now, what, 14 years later. Um, so it's a great question to raise. Uh, I would quibble with the analogy. Um, and for anyone interested about the fall of Gaza, there's a whole chapter in the monograph that you alluded to at the top that I wrote with Raith Omari about uh, the, the political and security context within which Hamas took over Gaza back in June of 2007. Um, not to belabor the point, but the timing could not have been worse for Israel to withdraw from Gaza in 2005. Uh, we have to remember that uh, the Second Intifada uh, had just really come to, to a close at that point uh, as part of the counter-terror offensive uh, by Ariel Sharon, now Prime Minister Ariel Sharon. Uh, the PA and the PA security forces and the Fatah militants running around alongside Hamas and Islamic Jihad, they were all engaged in terrorism. So as part of the counterterror offensive by the Israelis, they smashed the PA security forces, uh, I would argue rightfully so. Uh, they disarmed them, they arrested a lot of them. There was a kind of a lot of uh, cross-pollination, if you will, between the PA security forces and the Fatah militant groups, the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigades, the Tanzim. So you had this security context, uh, and then you had the political context of Ariel Sharon deciding to withdraw, which arguably was the right decision just taken at the wrong time, uh, because the idea was that Israel would withdraw and that the PA and its PA security forces would uh, take a hold of Gaza and govern and uh, ideally turn it into something better uh, without Israeli settlements uh, dotting the landscape. Uh, and that obviously did not happen. Um, but the timing could not have been worse. Uh, you have to also remember coming out of the Second Intifada, uh, Hamas and other militant groups were, were at their peak. 
the the you can you can quibble with with how they spun the Israeli withdrawal, uh, but the militant groups amongst the Palestinians took credit for Israel withdrawing from Gaza when they did. Uh, violence works, terror works. The Israelis just left. Uh, I don't think that's the right conclusion to draw. Uh, I think Ariel Sharon made that decision to withdraw from Gaza for for other reasons, uh, legitimate reasons, having to do with the uh, political settlement of the conflict and demographics inside, you know, between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River and all that. Uh, but he took the decision, and uh, what? Less than two years later, Hamas uh, ran roughshod over the PA security forces and took control. Um, the right analogy would be that if the U.S. Uh, trained the Afghan army. And then at a certain point, the Afghan army joined forces with the Taliban and launched an insurgency against U.S. forces in, in Afghanistan. Uh, and then the U.S. had to battle both of them. And then afterwards, uh, the U.S. would hand over Afghanistan to the Afghan security forces and, and the Afghan government. Um, that's the right analogy. Uh, and obviously that didn't happen in Afghanistan. It was very different. Um, and now you have... I would argue, a very different uh, Palestinian Authority leadership. Uh, it's not Yasser Arafat anymore. It's Mahmoud Abbas. Uh, he had just taken over and won his own election uh, in 2006, right before Hamas took over Gaza. What changed between the, uh, let's call it the old Palestinian Authority under Arafat and the Palestinian Authority that emerged under Abbas, following up on your own analogy? Right. Uh, I mean, Mahmoud Abbas, at a very basic level, uh, is against the use of, of terror. Uh, as, as Dennis Ross uh, once told me, uh, it's not a small difference between Abu Mazen, Mahmoud Abbas, and, and Hamas. It's not a small difference. Um, and that's to his credit. And obviously, he's done a lot uh, wrong since he took power from Arafat uh, over these past, what, 15 years? Uh, I'm not trying to absolve him. From, from any responsibility for the fall of Gaza. There was a lot that was done wrong. Uh, there were divisions and infighting amongst uh, PA security forces and Fatah themselves, uh, which led to the fall of Gaza. Uh, but again, the PA security forces coming out of that trauma, and it was a trauma for, for the PA, uh, I think they have come out of that uh, stronger. Uh, and again, with US and European uh, advice and counseling and coordination, uh, and I think that's that's all for the good. Um, but but uh, it, you know the PA now is is very different than Yasser Arafat's Palestinian Authority uh, in the 1990s. Arafat used to play this double game uh, with Israel, negotiating on the one hand and uh, at least enabling terror attacks or looking, uh, or, you know, turning a blind eye to terror attacks. On the other hand, uh, Abbas, for all his faults, and there are faults, uh, does not do that. Um, there's really tight security coordination still between Israel and the PA. Uh, there's a common interest in, in battling Hamas and Islamic Jihad uh, in the West Bank. And overall, uh, they've shown that, uh, what, for a decade plus, uh, the West Bank has been has been relatively stable um, relative to the Middle East and the Israeli-Palestinian arena, of course, uh, but relatively stable. And, and it's night and day different than what it was during the Second Intifada and even during the heyday of Oslo. Uh, in the 1990s. Before we close out, I want to go after one more point in these uh, Israeli-Palestinian conflict, Afghanistan comparisons. There's been kind of a talking point that's emerged more on the U.S. side about questioning whether uh, local allies, local partners uh, were worth the investment, speaking again of the, the Afghan government. 
Um, and in the Israeli context, uh, the, uh, the comparison there is, as we've been discussing, the Palestinian Authority, even if it's not a one-to-one analogy, as you've laid out. And these days, the uh, new Israeli government, or the, the relatively new Israeli government, I don't know when we stopped calling it the new one, but it, it's <laughs> been, been in power for, for, for a couple of months now, right. uh, is taking steps to shore up the Palestinian Authority, um, announced in tandem with a meeting that happened just the other day between Defense Minister Benny Gantz and Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas. I think they're doing things like uh, they announced a loan, for example, of $155 million dollars. So what is Israel trying to accomplish here with the Palestinian Authority? So there are a whole slew of things that the Israelis uh, either have put in motion or are planning to put in motion. A lot of, like you said, uh, economic support. Uh, Israel also issued uh, 15,000 new work permits for West Bank Palestinians to work inside Israel. Uh, There's family reunification allowances between uh, the West Bank and Gaza, uh, which is quite, quite important inside Palestinian society. Um, there are other plans in the works, also including uh, the overall security environment in the West Bank, which which should arguably help uh, the PA. Uh, the whole idea, uh, as Benny Gantz, the defense minister, said himself, is to strengthen the PA um, on its own merits, uh, but strengthen the PA and also vis-a-vis Hamas in Gaza. Uh, so the the old policy, I would argue, under under Bibi Netanyahu was. Uh, we're negotiating with Hamas, and Bibi did negotiate with Hamas. Uh, we're going to respond to their rocket fire and, and border attacks, and we're going to negotiate and give them all kinds of things like Qatari cash and uh, other access and movement uh, easures around uh, Gaza and, and the like, and improve the situation in Gaza. Um, while at the same time, the people who you're actually uh, speaking to directly. Uh, at least via security officials and um, coordinating with on a on a daily and nightly basis in the West Bank, which is a P- Palestinian Authority led by Abbas, you're you're going to shut them out. You're going to freeze them out. Uh, there are no no diplomatic talks. Everything was viewed under BB as a zero sum game. Uh, in other words, you know, okay, we're we're going to consider giving you extra work permits, but what are we getting in return? Uh, and now uh, under this new Israeli government. I think the paradigm has shifted. I think the understanding is that uh, for for Israeli interests, uh, you have to strengthen the moderates in Palestinian society, uh, like Abbas, again, for all his faults, and show that that path of, of nonviolence uh, actually gets results, uh, and not just the path of, path of violence um, uh, that Hamas is, has uh, championed now for, for many years. Uh, and so I think that's the idea, as well as uh, obviously improve the overall security and economic environment in the West Bank. Uh, and that, in, in Israeli minds, will will help uh, stability. Uh, and then, obviously, the Americans are also pushing this. The, the Biden administration is also, also pushing this, uh, I think, for the reasons that I mentioned. And also with an eye to maybe once the politics realign on the Israeli side and on the Palestinian side, uh, these confidence-building measures uh, can be a stepping stone to renewed uh, and actual peace talks. Uh, but no one is expecting that anytime soon. I think uh, these steps are being taken uh, on their own merits to essentially improve the situation and and uh, to mark a, a real paradigm shift, I would argue, in Israeli strategy vis-a-vis the Palestinians, 
uh, to what we saw over the past 12 years uh, under Netanyahu. And of course, there are issues with the Palestinian Authority, and you've alluded to some in terms of uh, governance and democracy issues, and, and there's been a uh, crackdown since the, the killing of uh, Nizar Banat, a Palestinian activist uh, at the hands of the PA security forces. And taking all that into account, do you think that this is uh, still a sound investment on the Israeli government's part? I think it's a sound investment. Uh, I think for all its faults, and again, not to belabor the point, but there are a lot of faults uh, to be found in, in the PA and the current leadership at the top of the PA. Uh, they are still a partner, at least in terms of security and upholding uh, security and stability in the West Bank. Uh, again, not a minor difference, uh, if, especially if you compare it to Hamas and, and the Hamas strategy uh, escalating every once in a while to to extract concessions from Israel. Uh arguably very similar to how Arafat played it back in the 1990s. So I think it's a sound investment. Uh, but again, you have, also have to ask the question from the Israeli point of view, what's the alternative? What's the alternative? Uh, was it the status quo? Was it deterioration? Uh, was it was it uh, essentially just negotiating with Hamas? Um, I don't think it was sustainable to ignore Ramallah and ignore the PA and think that uh, the relative stability that we've seen here over the past decade plus will just continue on endlessly. Um, obviously, Mahmoud Abbas himself is uh, 85 years old. Uh, nobody lives forever, not even uh, Arab autocrats. And so at a certain point, you're going to have a transition at the very top of the PA. Uh, and the person, the man, it'll be a man, uh, obviously, and, and sadly, but it'll be a man, uh, may, not, may not think the same as, as Abbas. Uh, he may not wholly reject uh, the use of violence and, and pressure of that sort against Israel. Uh, you may see a different strategy uh, coming out of Ramallah, and that will, I think, the Israelis understand that will that will be a, a major issue on its own. Um, if Gaza is hard enough to manage uh, every few weeks, every few months, every few years with these escalations. Um, the West Bank is is quite a different proposition, just based on its proximity to Israeli population centers and also, uh, uh, obviously, Israeli citizens living in the settlements. Right, and as you were saying earlier, no small difference between Abbas and Hamas. Uh, that's all the time we have for today, Neri. Thank you for joining us, and we're looking forward to having you on more podcasts very soon. My pleasure, Evan. Uh, really looking forward to it. And uh, wish everybody a happy upcoming holidays who are observing and celebrating. Yes. To all of our Jewish listeners, Shana Tovah Mitzvah, happy sweet new year. We'll catch you again in 5782. Just a few quick announcements before we close this one out. We will be including, of course, a link to Neri's report on the Palestinian Authority Security Forces, uh, as well as his article in New Lines on Afghanistan and Southern Lebanon in the show notes. So be sure to check both of those out. And finally, with the holidays coming up, we'll be taking a short podcasting break, but we are going to be back with new content in just a few weeks. So keep an eye out for all of that. So thanks again for tuning in. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we will see you soon.